If your Bibles turn with me to Psalm 119. Should be good there. Uh, be in prayer for the Tomlinson family. They are not, not feeling well today, um, especially Pastor Joey. So just be praying for them. They're doing okay, but um, we're going to continue back with our series in First Timothy, uh, Lord willing, next week. Uh, but today we're going to be jumping into Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. Uh, psalm 119, it's, it's one of the longest psalms in, or it is the longest psalm in the Bible. Uh, it's likely written by King David, and it's a meditation on the blessed life, the, the happy life. And uh, we can agree, uh, by way of introduction, I think we can agree that most people want to be happy. Um, you walk around a college campus these days, and you ask uh, just an average student what, uh, what the meaning and purpose of life is, generally the answer you'll get is uh, to live a good life or to, to be happy. And if we look around the world, it seems like the world is seeking to satisfy their desires and, and pursue things that, that give them a sense of uh, satisfaction or contentment or pleasure. Right? We, want, we want to enjoy time with our friends. We want to go to a school that we'll enjoy the most. Uh, we want to have a good job that we like. We want to have a good marriage and a good family. We want safety, security, all of these things in a pursuit to live a life that we perceive as happy or good, or blessed. But, but it seems like we live in a time, right, where there's a lot of unrest. There's so much bitterness and hostility and resentment and depression and anxiety, and, and these things seem to be skyrocketing. Right? The pursuit of happiness isn't working out the way maybe we thought it would. And as Christians, we know why this is, right? We know why people are unhappy, we know why sin, sin has entered in the, into the world. We, that's the reason why our, our pursuit of happiness doesn't always work out the way we think. I mean, we live in a fallen world. And we know the only way to find true happiness is to repent of your sin, to trust in Christ, to find forgiveness for your sin in him, and to, to live free from the power of sin and death, to experience eternal life with him. Right? In Christ, we've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so in every circumstance, no matter what's going on, we can rejoice. We can be joyful. We can be happy. Our Christians should be the most happy people out there. But this morning, I want to address a particular problem that we often see in the church. And this will arise from time to time. There are these Christians, those that are truly converted, those that are born again by the Holy Spirit, and they've been given new hearts. They've, been, they've, been, they've repented of their sin. They've, they're following Christ. Yet, they seem sad. They seem discouraged. They seem distant and cold. They don't even seem happy at all. There's no joy in them. And really, in fact, when you, when you talk to them, there's, it's the quite opposite. Why, why are you so gloomy? Well, and why is this observation, why is this peculiar, why is this strange? Right? Because of what we believe, what I just said, that God saved us from eternal condemnation in hell. He's given us freedom from sin and everlasting life. What could possibly be the justification for a gloomy Christian? Well, there's a number of reasons why we 
that could be the case, and we don't have time to dig into all of those reasons, but we know that those people exist, and maybe you have been one of them. Today is going to be an encouragement to that discouraged Christian, the, the saddened Christian, the cold and distant Christian. And for all of us, we, we want to know, how do, how do we live a happy Christian life? Can we live a happy Christian life? I think we can, and I think we must. Right? Our, our witness as ambassadors for Christ is at stake. And, and God has commanded us, rejoice in the Lord always. Well, Psalm 119, it, it addresses this very topic. Right? How can one live a happy life? And as we examine the meditations found in this psalm, we'll we'll see some different aspects of God's word that reveal the things Christians do in light of what Christ has done for them to live a happy life. Let's read our text this morning. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. Psalmist writes this. He says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This morning, we'll see that in order to live a happy life following Christ, we must pursue purity. That's the the theme of this morning. How do we live a happy life? Pursue purity. But before we get to how we pursue purity, we we need to ask a more foundational question. And that is, what is purity? Because that's going to be important. We see the psalmist begins with a simple question and answer in verse 9. Look at verse 9. He asks, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Now, before I continue, I want to point out that, that uh, the young man is not the exclusive audience of our text here. All right, the psalmist is likely an older man. He's taking the role of a teacher. This is a, a catechism of sorts, right? a question and answer form of teaching that is often used to instruct young people and teach them about the basic truths of Christianity. But I do want the young people to to pay special attention this morning. There's there's a special application for you here today as you're beginning to walk with Christ. And for those of you who are older, if you've lived on earth for any length of time, when when you look back on your youth, and you've made decisions, uh, and and you're thinking about maybe your sin that you've entangled yourself with, and all the trouble it may have caused you, there may be things that in your life that have just totally altered your life, that altered its entire course. There may be things that are haunting you still to this day. Right? You may be here in a very sorry state, thinking to yourself, if only I knew what I knew, know now, then things wouldn't be as they are. Right? You might be wondering, what, what could I have done when I was a young man or a young woman to keep my way pure and avoid getting to where I am right now? And, and the psalmist addresses these things. So the point is, this is for everyone. This is not just for the young man. 
But let's examine this. He's, he's asking, how can a young man keep his way pure? What is purity? Well, the word pure here means clean in, in a moral sense. There's a standard of morality that defines what is pure and what is impure. And, and God has revealed that in his moral law. Right? I mean, it's summarized in the Ten Commandments. And this isn't some abstract morality or subjective morality like our culture argues for. This is the clearly revealed law of God that's written on every single person's heart. We all know what's right. We all know what's wrong. And it's our nature as image bearers of God. We know it's, it's wrong to worship any other God besides the triune God of Scripture. And it's right to worship Him in spirit and truth. Everyone knows that. We know that dishonoring our parents is wrong and that it's right to honor them. We, we know that murder is wrong and it's right to promote life. We know stealing is wrong and it's right to protect private property and we could go through all of them. But in light of moral, God's moral law, to be morally pure then means we do what is right according to God's law. When we are brought under examination, our deeds are righteous. We, we have right standing according to the law. We're, we're not guilty of violating it. We're not blame, we're blameless, right? As the psalmist says, look at verse 1 of, of, of Psalm 119. It says this. It says, Blessed are those who, whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Verse 3. And, well, if we're honest, like, none of us are blameless according to God's law. Right? The standard of morality here is perfection, no wrong. So we see it, we're all guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're born in sin, we're dead in our sin, and we cannot keep our way pure. And because of this, everyone's guilty under the law, and we deserve condemnation. We deserve judgment from God. Because God's holy, and his law is holy. So how can a young man keep his way pure? Well, he can't. But that's not the answer the psalmist gives. Right? The answer here is it, it, it actually deeper than that. He understands more fully than that. Right? He understands the purpose of God's law and God's plan of redemption. Right? He says this young man can keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word. That word guard, it, it means to observe, to keep or to protect. It's the same word used throughout the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai where God instructs the nation of Israel to keep his commandments. And so that certainly includes obedience. But that word is also used to describe God's command for Adam and Eve to keep and cultivate the garden. It carries with it this sense of stewardship given from God. Now we know that man fell. Adam and Eve failed to steward the garden as God intended. Right? Adam failed to crush the serpent. Right? That's why Christ had to come. He did what Adam couldn't do. Christ defeated sin and death through his death on the cross. And now by the power of the Spirit purifying our hearts through faith in Christ, he pays our debt, he clears our guilt, he cleanses us from the stain of sin, and he enables us to live righteously through faith. Titus 3, 4 through 8, it, it unpacks this. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So it's because of the righteousness that Christ earned in his life, right? He was the the blessed man who walked in the law of the Lord. We stand hidden in Christ's righteousness, right? We were granted right standing before God in him. And so it's by his grace alone that we can say through faith in Christ, we guard our way according to his word. That is how we keep our way pure. And so that's, that's the starting point for examination on how to pursue purity. In light of what Christ has done, how do we live? And we're going to look at the example of the psalmist. So after he gives this simple instruction, this catechism, he turns in, in prayerful reflection upon his life. Someone who's pursuing purity. So there's three things I want us to consider today that will show us by God's grace how to live this happy Christian life by guarding his way, our way according to his word. And the first one is this. Take responsibility for your life and submit to God's sovereignty. Take responsibility for your life and submit to God's sovereignty. We see this in verse 10. The psalmist writes this. He says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. So here we have the psalmist. He's taking responsibility for his life and he is submitting to God's sovereignty. There's there's certainly a lot of debate uh, about the relationship between man's will and God's sovereign will. Even unbelievers and skeptics of the Christian faith, they have objections uh, because they have a twisted view of these things. I remember a couple years ago, I was uh, out doing evangelism on a college campus and talking to a student. Uh, He was an atheist. He claimed to be a materialist. And and one day he he told me, actually, we were sitting at a table and he said, I'm no different than this table. Uh, I'm just a different formation of the same atoms and molecules. But while he believed that there was no God, he argued that everything was predetermined. Well, a simple follow-up question to unravel that position, you know, well, well, who predetermined everything, right? We couldn't give an answer to that. But then he went on to argue because everything was predetermined, there's no grounds for morality. You, you, you can't convict a murderer uh, because, well, he's just a product of his environment. We can't hold him responsible because it was inevitable. He, it's just pure cause and effect. Well, what he doesn't understand is that his argument was in and of itself a moral judgment. And it would be a very scary world to live in. Now, there's more to the story, but, but the point is this. There's a lot of confusion and debate about man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And it's important for us to address this as a church and to talk about it with charity. But we must understand that there are two truths in Scripture clearly revealed that we must believe and hold with equal weight by faith. They are man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. Right, we, we first, we see the psalmist recognize his responsibility. He seeks the Lord with his whole heart. Right, he, is, he understands that he is accountable to a holy God for the way in which he lives his life. Therefore, he determines to live according to the commands God has revealed in his word. And at the same time, 
The psalmist recognizes that God alone is righteous. Righteousness can only come from him. Therefore, he lives in prayerful dependence on God to enable him to live according to God's commandments. Right? He cries out, let me not wander from your commandments. So prayer is an act of submission to God's sovereignty. It's acknowledging God is in control of all things. Now, I don't fully understand how these two things can coexist, right? How God's decree in eternity past, he, he decreed all things, and he sovereignly and providentially accomplishes his perfect will. But at the same time, he's not the author of evil, allowing us to make decisions according, and he allows us to make decisions according to our nature. I don't, I don't fully understand that, but what I do know is that both of these truths are in the text, right? They're there. We see them right in front of us. And since they're God's word, we must submit to them in humility and, and wrestle with them by faith. So how does this all relate to pursuing purity and living a happy life? And I think these are, these are really essential and foundational to this, this way of living. Right, but just think for a minute. If you lack a firm grasp of your responsibility before God, what's the result? Well, apathy. Right? It's, not, it's not up to me. I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to do anything. It's all predetermined. On the other side, if you lack a, grasp, a firm grasp of God's sovereignty, well, the result is anxiety because it's all up to me. It's all on my shoulders how I live my life. But what happens when you firmly grasp both of them? Well, apathy, it turns to zeal. Right? When we recognize that we're responsible for our lives, that we live before the face of an almighty God, and we'll stand and give an accounting to him, knowing that eternity is at stake, that there's no, there's no greater motivation than that. Right? It's going to be either heaven or hell. And how I live is evidence of where I'm going. Right? Revelation 20, 11 through 15. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Right, this is Christ. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And it's anyone, if anyone's name was not writ, found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Right, if you're here this morning and you're not following Christ, what are you living for? Are, are you living with a conscious awareness of, of this day? when every single person is going to stand before God and give an account for their life. And we know that we're all, we're all going to be found guilty. We all deserve hell because we've sinned against God. But is your name going to be written in the book of life? Is Christ going to be the one who's advocating for you on behalf of you? Or are you going to be thrown into the lake of fire? Right? How can you know? How can you know that your name is written in the book of life? Well, re repent of your sin and come to Jesus Christ. Take responsibility for your life and come to Christ. Our Savior, he said, he said all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Right, through faith in Christ, your sins can be forgiven. 
mean, that is a, that is a wonderful reality. And, and apathy, it turns to zeal. It turns to zeal. The second thing, anxiety, it, it turns to peace. Right? When we acknowledge that God is sovereign, he is the one ultimately in control of our lives, there, there's no greater comfort. Right? Because Christ's spirit is at work within us, we can pray for help. And the God who holds the world in his hand, he hears us, right? He, he answers us. He gives us strength. Philippians 4, 5 through 7, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Right, so what are you, what are you worried about? Do you know God? Do you know who he is? Right, he, he's the God of peace that surpasses all understanding. If you have faith in Christ, if you're in him, he cares for you. Right? He's watching over you. He's leading you on a path that is for your good and for his glory. Anxiety turns to peace. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are like car jumper cables that will energize your life. Right? If you want to follow Christ, live for the glory of God in a pursuit of purity, then you must dig your heels in to these things. Take responsibility for your life and submit to God's sovereignty. Second, fear God. Fear God. In order to pursue purity, we must fear God. In verse 11, we see the psalmist, he gives reasons for why he's pursuing purity. Why is he guarding his way according to the word of God? Why is he storing up God's word in his heart? Look at verse 11. It says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He fears God. What does it mean to fear God? Well, we see two elements of the fear of God in this passage. To fear God or or the fear of the Lord as it's described elsewhere in scripture, it means you fear God by loving his word. You love his word. The The psalmist says he stored up God's word in his heart. This phrase has this sense that this man is uh, treasuring these things. He's hiding them away like a buried treasure. He's concealing something of enormous value. It's the most important thing in his life, and so he is protecting it. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So if you love wisdom, if you love instruction and knowledge of God, then you fear God. So do you you study the scriptures? Do you meditate on the word of God? Those who do these things are walking in the fear of the Lord. If you don't reverence his word, if if you despise wisdom and despise instruction, you are a fool. So is the main focus of your life on anything else but God's word? If if so, take it away and pursue God's word. Second, you fear God if you hate sin. The psalmist says he stores up God's word so that he might not sin against God. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech 
I hate. Right? If you hate pride and arrogance and lies and all that's evil in this world, things that are contrary to God's law, then you fear God. Do you hate your sin? Do you grieve the sin that lingers in your life? Does it make you sick? Right? That's, that's the fear of the Lord. So to fear God means to hate sin as God hates sin and to love God's word as he has lovingly revealed it to us. So why does it matter? What, how does this help us pursue the happy life? What well, we see in Proverbs 19.23, it says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. The first thing we see is that the fear of God frees us from the cares of the world. Right? If, if I fear God, if I'm accountable to God and God alone, well, what he thinks of me is really the only thing that matters, right? I mean, the opinions of others just fade away like they're nothing. And if I fear God by submitting to the, the, the so- his sovereignty over my life, then what he's given me is enough, right? Because he cares for me. I'm content. I don't need anything else. It, it, it frees me up to live without any needs, the second thing, fear, fear of God, it, it frees us up to love our neighbor regardless of the cultural opposition to what love of neighbor actually means. Right? Our culture has trumpeted a, a love of neighbor that has no fear of God. And, and, and they don't consider God's word. Right? The first that question we should ask when thinking about loving our neighbor is, what does God have to say about this? Right? Because most people don't understand that it's the Christian version of loving our neighbor that will lead us to suffer, right? So, so if loving neighbor leads us to suffering, then well, the only way we're going to do that is if we fear God, right? First Peter three thirteen through 17, it says this. It says, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Fear God, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a hope that is within you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your conduct in Christ might be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil." We're, we're the church. We're the, the pillar and buttress of truth. And, and we're living in a world that's becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian faith, right? So we're going to face opposition. And if we're going to live in this world and to, be, to live joyfully, to, to walk in happiness and, 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 and walk in the joy of the Lord without getting discouraged, we need to understand that suffering is a part of loving our neighbor. And we do that because we fear God and not man. So to review, fear God, submit to God's sovereignty, and take responsibility for your life. Now, before we go on, uh, we should acknowledge uh, what doesn't happen after this passage. We're going to talk about what happens next in a moment, but what does not happen? What does the psalmist not do? He's just unloaded these two things, right? God's sovereignty, or these three things, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, the fear of the Lord. What does he not do? He, he, he doesn't try to figure out how man's responsibility and God's sovereignty relate. 
He doesn't write a theological treatise trying to fit these things together. You know, we, we actually have a, a, a passage of Scripture that un- wrestles with that, right? Romans 9 tries to wrestle with man's responsibility, God's sovereignty. I don't want to downplay that, but the psalmist acknowledges his responsibility, he acknowledges God's sovereignty, and then he moves on. He's not wondering whether he understands all of these things before he goes on to obey God. His lack of knowledge doesn't keep him from loving the people around him and pursuing God as the way God prescribed it. And the second thing is when he acknowledges uh, his, his sin against God or that, that he's, he fears God, he's trying not to sin against God, right? He's not contemplating all the ways that he's failed God. He's not wallowing in his sin, right? Even though in the Psalms we see honest prayers and petitions to the Lord. I don't want to downplay the difficulty of life. But here the, the psalmist acknowledges he must fight sin in fear of the Lord, and then he moves on. Right? His past sin is not a hindrance for how he lives for God now, because he knows he's been forgiven. Right? I think so many times we, we make all these arguments, and we, we come up with all these things and reasons for, for, for not doing what God has put on our hearts to do, and to, to live in the way that God designed, us to, uh, designed life to be lived. We think in our heads, we think, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to go and share the gospel with that person. I, I haven't figured it all out enough. I don't have all my theology sorted out. Wait, what, if, what if they ask a question I don't know the answer to? Or, or maybe, maybe I can't have them over to my home because they're, they're just going to see how much of a sinner I am. They're, gonna, they're just going to see how messed up my life is. we're thinking all wrong here, right? Because we're looking in the wrong direction. We're looking at ourselves. We're looking at ourselves. And this is, this is essential for us to understand. If, if we want to truly live with joy in this life, what does the psalmist do? What does he do? He delights in the law of God. He focuses on the word of God. Of God. He meditates on the precepts of God. He fixes his eyes on the ways of God. What does he say? Verse 12 Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. What is he doing? He's looking to Christ. Right? He's, looking, he's looking at Christ. Christ is the word of God made flesh. Right? He's looking forward to the Savior. He's looking to Christ who fulfilled the law, who is the law revealed to us. Right? If you want to be living a happy Christian life, you need to get your eyes off yourself and look at Christ. Right? Look to Christ as you take responsibility for your life. I, th- I think it can be easy, especially for young Christians, once you start following Christ, to, to become discouraged. Because before you came to Christ, you didn't know what sin was. You didn't even care. Right? You loved sinning. 
But when God saved you, he opened your eyes to the miserable condition that you were in. And now sin was everywhere, right? You, you couldn't escape it. it. It seemed like you couldn't stop sinning. And you kept failing over and over and over and over and you would go to the Lord and plead with him and ask him, how long, O Lord, how long, how long can this keep going on? And and it just became afraid and worried and and there were times where you would give up and, and I can't do it, I can't go on, it's too hard. But God loved you too much, right, to keep you in immaturity. And so what did he do? Right, he gave you his word. And so you, what did you do? You opened it and you read it. And you heard it preached to you, and a friend spoke it to you, and the Spirit convicted you, and you believed again, and you repented of your sin, and you trusted in Christ, and you kept going, and you kept fighting, and you kept running, and you kept going, and you kept going, and you kept fighting. And slowly but surely, bit by bit, like a mustard seed growing into a tree, God began to work something in you, something beautiful, and the sin that once enslaved you and destroyed you you began to understand and believe that it had no power over you. You began to understand that. The condemnation that once hung over you like a cloud began to clear away because you're beginning to understand that every single one of your sins has really been forgiven because Jesus paid it all. And the reason why you see it happen this way, the reason why God sovereignly, graciously, he gently brought you to this place The reason why he took you through all of that was so that you would know that there is nothing about you that allowed you to get to where you are right now, right? It was purely because of the grace and mercy and love of God that he bestowed upon you, right? There's no room for pride in our testimonies, right? Because Christ carried us every step of the way as we fed on his word, as we walked with him, as we repented and believed and repented and believed. It was all because of him. And we can only take responsibility for our lives because Christ is in us, both to work and to will for his good pleasure. So stop making excuses for not obeying God. Look to Christ. Admit you're a failure. And move on. And walk in obedience. Look to Christ as, as you submit to God's sovereignty, right? We can only learn to submit to God's sovereignty by looking to Christ who perfectly submitted to the will of his heavenly father, right? He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, right? It was, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, right? If we don't recognize God's sovereignty in our lives, as well as his, our responsibility, right? The thorns and thistles in this life are going to be a constant source of anxiety and frustration, and look to Christ as you fear God. Right? We can only learn to fear God and not man by looking to Christ, who, through, who though the whole world hated him, right, he died for them. He served them. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. So look to Christ. That's the point. Look to Jesus Christ. I'm going to read a quote from Robert Murray McShane, um, who encourages Christians to look to Christ. He says this, He says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. 
Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. Pursue purity by taking responsibility for your life, submit to God's sovereignty, fear God, look to Christ, and live a happy life with him. A few takeaways for us this morning. First, study the scriptures with humility as you seek to understand both man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. Study the scriptures with humility as you seek to understand both man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And we'll, we'll post these online later, so don't feel like you have to write them all down. Second, find a godly mentor who fears God more than you do and follow their example, knowing that they are just as sinful and broken as you are. Third, stop navel-gazing. Admit that you're a failure and that you will always be one. Look to Christ, who will never fail you, and enjoy the life the way God designed it to be lived. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have uh, revealed your word fully and finally in Christ Jesus. Because of him, we have life. God, we have abundant life. And Lord, so often we, we, we walk through this world not living as we ought. Um, God, for whatever reason it is that keeps us from walking in the joy that you have placed before us, God. So help us to endure. Help us to walk faithfully before you, delighting in your word. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us. You would grow us, sanctify us in your word. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.